Isn't that wonderful? That glorious music as we hear it, it just makes you want to be there, doesn't it? To be there on that very first Easter gathered near the empty tomb, it just makes you, you want to experience it, to witness the tomb is empty that very first morning, to know the feeling of a triumph over the grave that they surely experienced there in the garden tomb, to walk around the garden to experience the joy that surely filled that place that filled the hearts of the first followers there on the very first Easter. But if you were able to go to the garden tomb on that very first Easter morning, if you were able to be there at the graveside of Jesus, if you could go into the upper room where the disciples are huddled together, if you could visit with those followers who are in hiding, that are undercover and in shadows, you would not hear the type of glorious singing that we see, sing here this morning. No one would have been singing, Christ the Lord is risen today. Up from the grave he arose. That would not be the songs, not just because they weren't written, but that was not the sentiment there in Jerusalem on that very first Easter morning. Easter was a time not for rejoicing for the first followers of Jesus, but for mourning and for grieving. On the very first Easter, the dream that the disciples had experienced and been living as his followers were the dream was buried away there with Jesus in the tomb. Many of them had been following Jesus for three years. They had heard the teaching. They had seen the healings. They had participated in the miracles. They were certain that Jesus had come from God. They believed that he was the long-awaited Messiah that they had been praying for, looking for. He had come. He had come to fix their broken world to bring meaning, to usher in a new kingdom that he would reign over for all eternity. The idea that the Messiah would be crucified was nothing they had ever considered. I imagine that even after his arrest and trial, they probably still had hope. Even as they watched him being crucified, hanging on the cross, surely they were thinking, oh, he's about to do it. Come on, Jesus. Bring yourself down. Do the miracle right here in front of their eyes. But they heard him say from the cross, it is finished. They saw him breathe his last breath and hang his head in death. They saw the soldier's spear go into his side and he didn't flinch. Jesus was dead. And in that moment, I believe all hope left their bodies. Their dream of a real Messiah who would usher in God's kingdom, the dream that reached a fever pitch just days earlier as they paraded with Jesus who was riding on the back of a donkey into Jerusalem to shouts of glory and Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That dream died with Jesus on the cross. It was lowered with Jesus. It was carried off with him and it was buried in the tomb, Joseph of Arimathea's tomb where Jesus' body was laid. By the time the first Easter morning rolled around. Those followers of Jesus were not singing songs of triumph. They were not singing songs of victory. They were mourning. And I'm sure you've been there before, after the death of a loved one. I remember whenever my uh, grandmother died, and our whole family, which is a big family, we gathered at her home in Tennessee. And we all just wanted to be there together. And it was an odd feeling. We kept waiting for her to walk out of her bedroom to smell what she was cooking in the kitchen. It was just sad to sit there, but we just wanted to be right there, right where she was, with, would have been with one another. And 
A lot of it was grief, but occasionally somebody would tell a story. Remember how she used to? Or remember how it tasted, that dessert that she would make? Or remember how she would um, uh, respond when you asked the question? Remember that time we went to such and such? Remember how she said our names? And we all would sit there and occasionally uh, laugh and celebration, but then it soon would turn to grief once again. Somebody would drop by with food or just to show up to be present, but we were all there and we were just gathered grieving. Well, that's not very different from what's happening on the very first Easter in Jerusalem. Maybe there were stories as the disciples were together. Well, what if, or if only we would have, and occasionally I'm sure there was an outburst of anger, but they probably did just like we would have, just sharing stories. Remember when? Remember that time we were in Peter's mother-in-law's home and they rolled back the roof and that lame man got lowered right in front of Jesus. Do y'all remember? Of course we remember. We were there. Remember how he spoke to him? He said, take up your mat and walk. And he did? Yeah. Remember whenever it had been a long day and everybody was gathered there to hear him speak and then, of course, they started getting hungry. And Jesus took the fish and bread and decided he was going to feed them. We thought he was crazy. We said, this won't do it. Well, he fed them, and he had 12 basketfuls left over. Do y'all remember? Yes. I'm sure they laughed occasionally, but most of it just would devolve into grief. It was not any place that we would truly want to be. And then came the whispers of something happening at Joseph's tomb. Mary came rushing in. They thought she was crazy at first. But at least a couple of them were curious enough to run back to find out if what she was saying was true. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I want you to turn with me to John's Gospel. We're going to be in chapter 20. If you don't have your Bibles, there are some in the pews, or they'll put the scripture on the screen for you. But John 20, and I'm going to read to you this morning. We're going to look at the whole chapter. But I'm going to read to you to begin verses 1 through 10. So John 20, verses 1 through 10. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have taken him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb. And he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here in this place and to celebrate that Jesus is not dead. Jesus is alive. And that gives us all the hope we need to face today, tomorrow, and any day that's in our future. God, we thank you for the opportunity to consider your word. And so now we come, ask that you would come and make this word live to us. Would you speak to us from your word? God, would you call the lost to salvation? Would you draw prodigals home? Would you call your followers into deeper discipleship this morning? Lord, I pray that I would not be distraction, 
but mere conduit so you might meet with your people today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. On the first day of the week following Jesus' death and burial, Mary Magdalene discovers an open grave and an empty tomb. She runs to tell Peter and John. They visit the grave and they discover it's true. Jesus is not there. What I hope that you will take note of this morning as we look at this text is the fact that Jesus is alive. And if Jesus is alive, then that has the power to change everything. We're going to see in chapter 20 the eyewitness accounts of several folks who were there, who saw the empty grave, but all of their lives were dramatically changed when they saw the resurrected Jesus. And he can change your life too. We're going to begin with Peter and John's response and how the disciples' lives were changed in the resurrection. We're going to look at this under the header of he brings joy to the indifferent. Now, I do have to say that I have kind of rethought this header, but I'd already turned it in. It's in my notes, and I likely would have chosen a different phrase after I looked at it this weekend. But it's in, it comes from verse 10, where it says, So the disciples went away again to their own homes. It sounds like they saw the empty grave, but they're just kind of indifferent to it. They just go on, end of story, that's it. But we're going to look further at their uh, encounter with Jesus, and we're going to find that their response was not just, it was not just that they were indifferent. I think they were confused, and I think they were afraid. Either way, my proposition to you is that in the end, they were brought joy. And so we're going to look first at these uh, first verses of chapter 20 before we consider Peter and John's response. The text says Mary Magdalene was the first to the tomb. All the gospel writers agree on that. Um, They make it clear that there were other women there, but she also says that when she says we found it, um, uh, uh, found the empty tomb. But it was very early in the morning, before the crack of dawn. He says it was very dark still whenever she went out. And when she arrives, she finds that the big boulder uh, that had been placed in front of the uh, tomb so that nobody could go in or out, right, is rolled away. And it appears to her the body's missing. So she panics. And she runs to find Peter. And the text says the other disciple who Jesus loved. Now John wrote this gospel. And for some reason, rather than writing his name here, he just refers to himself in the third person, the other disciple whom Jesus loved. So she comes to Peter, she comes to John, and Mary says, they have taken his body, and we don't know where it is. Now, I'm not sure that she even knew who they was. Um, Perhaps she thought it was grave robbers, that was a common thing in Jesus' day. So she thought, they've come and they've stolen his body. Or maybe she thought that uh, some of the uh, followers of Jesus. But the way that Peter and John reacted makes you think that no, there were no followers of Jesus who took the body. Maybe she thought it was some sort of Roman official or maybe even somebody sent from Joseph of Arimathea. All we know is that she looked in, saw it was missing and said, they have taken the body. What she did not think was that God had moved the body. What she did not believe in that moment was that Jesus came to life, resurrected in the tomb, and walked out. So she tells Peter and John, and they take off racing. Now, I'd like to point out here that John thought it was important for y'all to know he was faster than Peter. Now, I I know that you're thinking, why would he put that in there? But see, I've got three boys, and they would do the same thing to me. They would say, well, I was the first one there. Well, I went in first. Well, I saw this. John is just like every other guy, right? So he says, I was fast. I ran there. I loved him the most. I got there quick, right? And so um, he gets there faster than Peter. And um, 
We get three verbs upon his arrival. It says that he stooped, he looked, and he saw. But what he didn't do was go in. He may be fast, but he ain't brave, right? So now, I don't blame him, right? Would you want to walk into the grave? We know he sees the grave clothes, and he's like, I don't know what's wandering around in there, right? So he stays, and it's kind of like, uh, we'll see what happens here. Peter, nothing was going to stop him. He comes barreling into the tomb. I guess John walks in behind him, and they find the body is missing, but the grave clothes are still there. And it sounds, as you read the text and the descriptions and the gospel accounts, that the grave clothes are lying there as if the one who was in them just kind of stood up and walked away, leaving the clothes exactly like they are. They were orderly, except for that face cloth that had just kind of been rolled up and set to the side in an orderly fashion. Why does John give us so much detail about the grave clothes? Isn't that strange? It's like he's, he's spending a lot of time on this. Well, I want us to talk about this. Uh, I think there may be some explanation here. We know that John and Peter were with Jesus just days earlier, maybe a few weeks. They had been in Bethany standing outside the tomb of Lazarus' body. Right? That's where Lazarus was de dead. They had rolled the stone away from that. And Jesus calls to dead Lazarus inside, Lazarus, come forth. John tells us he walks out, and he's very careful to tell us he's wrapped from head to toe in the grave clothing. Something different has happened here at Jesus' tomb. And so Peter and John draw conclusions based on what they saw. I'm sure they think, you know, if somebody stole that body, why would they unwrap him from the grave clothes? And if they did, wouldn't they have been in a hurry and kind of strewn him everywhere rather than orderly, let them orderly lay there? Or let's just say Joseph of Arimathea sent somebody and they took the body away. Surely they would not have unwrapped him to do that. Or if they did... Would it have looked like this? Or what if, let's just say, let's just say Jesus swooned and he's inside the tomb and he wakes up. Wouldn't those uh, threads have been torn to shreds? But no, they are orderly lying there. It seems as if he passed through them and in orderly fashion laid it there. So laid the uh, face cloth there. So a lot to consider here. All we know, John saw the empty tomb. He saw the state of the grave clothes. Verse 8, it says that he saw and believed. Now, we know it's a very basic level of belief because verse 9 tells us they didn't understand. They didn't understand Jesus had to rise from the dead. They never expected an empty tomb on Easter morning. But he saw the way the tomb looked, and it was as if he could see the fingerprints of God at the crime scene. He thought something divine has happened here, and he believed. Now, verse 10 tells us the disciples go their way, and uh, they're really indifferent is what it sounds like to me about the resurrection. Maybe a better descriptor is they're confused. They don't understand. And some of you in here this morning or joining us online or by television, you've also heard the story before. And you also are a little confused by it. Or maybe like John and Peter, you're just a little indifferent, unmoved by the event. You know it's a fantastic thing, but what, what does that matter? What does that really mean to me and my life? Well, John and Peter are in a state of confusion Sounds like they've got a tinge of hope right at the edges of their lips. They can't quite put their finger on it, but peace is trying to break through. Joy is starting to come out. And I know that many people who have walked into this service come here with a lot of questions about your life. You want to be hopeful, but confusion and fear is holding you back. You want to be able to rejoice in the resurrection, but dark clouds just seem to be hovering over your life right now. 
The reality of the resurrection is that Jesus has the power to bring joy to your confusion, to your indifference. He can bring courage to your fear. That's what we find happens in the lives of Peter and John. The text tells us they went away, and eventually they gathered with the other disciples that evening. In verses 19 and 20, we see what happens there, likely hiding behind closed doors because they're afraid. And then if you'll look with me in verses 19 and 20, it says, So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus comes to them. He speaks the common greeting of the region, peace upon them. The same peace that calmed the storm. The same peace that Paul writes about in Colossians 1 that comes through the blood of the cross. That's the peace he speaks into the room. And he comes to them. He reassures them with his peace. He shows them his scars, the evidence of his death. And the eyewitnesses were not brought to faith by the empty tomb. They believed because they saw the resurrected Jesus. And it was when the disciples saw the resurrected Jesus that they rejoiced. Then they were glad. I've been praying through some psalms, and this morning I was in Psalm 30. Verse 11 says, You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and girded me with gladness. I wonder if they finally sang and sang that psalm. He has set us free. He's taken off the sackcloth. He's given us joy. That's what the disciples find on the evening of the Easter Sunday. Jesus brings joy to indifference. He brings joy to confusion. He brings courage to fear. Now, Mary Magdalene had a similar experience. But what we find in her story is that Jesus gives hope to the hurting. Mary Magdalene is an unlikely character in the story. She's a woman who comes to Jesus from a very dark past, very dark place. She has a problem with demons. Um, So whatever she does with her life, she spends it with demons. She was tormented by evil. She was an outcast. She was a reject. But Jesus solved her problem. He had delivered her from evil. Her life was totally changed because she met Jesus. But now this, the one who saved her from all of that has now been crucified on a Roman cross and buried in a borrowed tomb. The text says she comes to the tomb while it's still dark, and you think, that is weird. You know, why would she do that? But you can relate to that, right? Many of you just want to be near lost loved ones, so you go to their graveside. You just want to be present, not that they can hear, but there's just something about being near where their remains are. It's very similar for her. She just wants to be near to the body of her Savior. We also know that she recognized Jesus' burial had been rushed. And they had rituals. They had traditions. And she wanted to make sure that his body was properly cared for in that moment to show loyalty and devotion just like he had shown to her. So she comes to sit with the body to be near uh, Jesus even in his death. And instead, she finds the body is missing. Now, we know that she runs off to tell Peter and John. John doesn't tell us how or when, but she comes back to the tomb. He just kind of cuts to the scene in verse 11. So let's look there now. It says, but Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? 
She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, which means teacher. The focus here is on her emotional state. She is distraught. She is inconsolable. Her grief is clearly over the death of one that she loved so much. Also the death of a dream, just like the disciples. She thought she had met the one who would not only fix her problems, but all the problems of the world. Then she watched him die. Now after the Sabbath, she comes to spend time at the grave, and the grave has been disturbed. So now she's not only mourning over the deceased body, she's, or the uh, deceased loved one, she's mourning over the missing body. Now does it stand out to you that she looks, she stoops, she looks, and she sees angels? And she just acts like that, that's normal. Such a strange thing. I think that shows us just how grieved she is. She can't even... She's not in touch with reality. She doesn't even recognize who they are or what they're doing. She just talks to them as if she's talking to you. She is overwhelmed by grief. The angels don't get her attention. She sees the empty tomb. She sees the grave clothes that were lying there, the ones that had convinced John that something miraculous had happened. Then she actually sees Jesus, but she doesn't even recognize him. When she sees him, she thinks it's like Joseph's gardener, and she's like, where did you move the body? We'll rebury him. You know, point me in the right direction. She speaks to the gardener, but she never expects to hear the Lord's voice. And then he calls to her, Mary. The Lord says that his sheep know his voice. Mary knew the voice of Jesus. She's lost in grief, but hearing her name draws her out of grief, and she finds hope in seeing Jesus and in hearing his voice. That's what he does. Jesus brings hope to the hurting. We live in a world filled with hurt. I don't have to explain that to you. But it's not just hurt on the um, macro level. It's not just painful on, even on the micro level. It is painful on a personal level. Some of you walk in here in this moment and you feel so betrayed by friends. So betrayed by loved ones. You feel pain by the circumstances that are affecting your life. You've tried to dole the pain in any manner of ways. You even came to church. You thought, well, maybe that'll take it away. Maybe that'll lift the cloud. You're experiencing grief. Maybe it's over the loss of a loved one. What you imagined as your future has been taken away. All you know is broken relationships. And all you can see in front of you is the reality of a broken world and a broken life. Jesus sees you. Jesus is familiar with your pain. He sees your past and he doesn't walk away. His resurrection brings the hope that you're longing for because his resurrection means you have the hope of a glorious eternity in your future with God. When Mary heard her name and she turned and saw the resurrected Jesus, all that hope that she lost at Golgotha comes rushing back into her life. She begins to worship him, and it's there that Jesus gives her a mission. Go and tell. 
It's the same mission that Jesus has given you. You've got to tell all you've seen and all you've heard. Perhaps you've heard these stories before, but you have a hard time believing them to be true. Guess what? Somebody who was very close to Jesus also struggled to believe. He came, we came up with a nickname for him. We call him Doubting Thomas. So I want you to look with me at verses 24 through 29. It says there in the text, But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see his hands, the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger. See my hands? And reach here your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Thomas is very uncertain about the resurrection, but he was not uncertain about Jesus' death. I know that some people doubt the resurrection because they say, well, maybe he didn't really die. He just swooned. He came back to life in the tomb. Thomas is the opposite (laughs) because he was certain Jesus died. He saw him beaten and bruised. He saw the blood pouring out of his wounds down his face. He saw the spear go in his side. He saw him breathe his last breath and hang his head in death. Thomas is certain Jesus died on the cross. And now, more than a week after Jesus' death and this supposed resurrection, Thomas is having to listen to these guys who say, he's alive. We've seen him. He spoke to us. I think Thomas thinks he's the only sane one in the group. And he's like, guys, we have got to snap out of this, okay? We saw him die. He's dead. He's not alive. You've got to work through this. You saw something or experienced something that felt like he was alive. He is not alive. Oh, he's alive. I mean, I would have to touch his wounds. I would have to put my hand in his open side to believe that Jesus is alive. Be careful what you ask for, right? I have to wonder how many of you come in here with doubts today. How many of you come in here with a list of things to say, well, I would need to see this or hear that or experience this to truly believe that Jesus is alive? What is it that you would need to see or hear or do in order to believe that Jesus is alive? The text says after eight days... The disciples are together. The doors are shut once again. Jesus appears again in the room. Once again, he speaks peace to them. And then he turns to Thomas. And if you come in here with doubts and you think, I wonder how Jesus feels about me and my doubts. You've got the uh, explanation here. He comes to Thomas. He turns to him. He calls his name. How tender can the Lord be? He comes to him. He'll come to you too. Jesus knew what Thomas had said about seeing the scars and touching his wounds. So he says, Thomas, come here, right here. You can put it in the side, your hand here. I don't think Thomas ever touched the wound. I don't think he ever put his hand in the side. I think all he needed to do was see Jesus. And his response, my Lord and my God. He might have initially doubted that Jesus was alive and kind of been the least among the disciples. But he shoots straight to the head of the class with this declaration, because he's saying, Jesus, you're not just a miracle worker. You're not just a great teacher. You are God. You are King of kings. You are Lord of lords. 
We find here in the text that Jesus reveals truth to the doubting. You come today with doubts about Jesus, doubts about the resurrection. Let me encourage you to be honest with the Lord about your doubts. He's big enough to handle them. He can also reveal truth to you by his spirit. You know, I have never seen the resurrected Lord with my physical eyes, but I am certain he is alive. I know his voice. I've experienced his love and forgiveness. I can sense his presence in my life. I have not seen, yet I believe. How much do I believe? Enough to build my whole life on him and upon the claims of his word. I have staked my very future upon the truth of his resurrection. I have no fear of death. I'm not concerned what tomorrow might bring because I am convinced that Jesus not only died and was buried, but that he rose again. And because he's alive, I can have the hope of resurrection too. That's what I believe. Well, we have looked at several accounts from eyewitnesses to the resurrection, but what about you? Verse 31, I think, speaks to you. It says, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. My friend, I don't know why you came here this morning. I don't know why you tuned into this service. I don't know what you're looking for. But I can tell you with all confidence, you can find life today by believing in the name of Jesus. See, Jesus didn't just die on a cross as a spectacle. He died in your place. He took upon himself the punishment you deserved because of your sins. The scriptures are clear. We have all sinned. To sin means we go our own way. It's to do different from what God wants us to do. And whenever we live life in our own way, that's sin. And the scriptures say there's punishment for that. The punishment is eternal death. It's death separation from God is what that means. But Jesus gives us life through his death on the cross. He's our substitute. He became your substitute, and he offers you life with God. What will you do with Jesus? Don't walk away from here and say, well, that was inspiring. Will you believe in him and receive him by finding life in his name? Today I say with confidence, the tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. I believe that to be more true than anything else I've ever considered in my life. And I invite you today to find the life I've found by believing in Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can have confidence today that Jesus is alive and we can have the hope of resurrection. Father, would you speak to souls now? We pray for the lost to be saved, for sinners to come home, for saints to be challenged. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We have a time of invitation. You might need to do business with the Lord. If you want to talk to me, I'll be standing down front. As our choir sings, you respond.